listening to Adjective New Music's podcast, Lexical Tones. I'm your host, Rob McClure. Gestural, spatial, chaotic. Douglas McCausland is a composer and performer who is fascinated with new aesthetic and technological domains, and whose chaotic and dense works explore the extremes of sound and the digital medium. Through his work, he investigates the various intersections of real-time electronic music performance with handmade interfaces and instruments, spatial audio with higher-order ambisonics or binaural, dynamic and interactive systems, the musical applications of machine learning, experimental sound design, and DIY electronics and hardware hacking. His works have been performed internationally at numerous festivals and symposiums, and recent honors include winning the first prize for the 2021 ASCAP Seamus Student Commission Competition and receiving an award of distinction in the 2021 Pre-Ars Electronica. Douglas is currently a DMA candidate at Stanford University, working towards his doctorate in composition while studying with Chris Chafe, Patricia Alessandrini, Yaroslav Kapuczynski, Fernando Lopez Lescano, and Mark Applebaum. Let's get started. Cool. Uh, Doug, great to meet you. Um, we've we've been on several festivals, several virtual festivals, and had they not been virtual, I would have met you a long time ago. But as <laughs> such, I think we've only seen each other pop up in the chat of those festivals. But uh, great yeah. to meet you, and uh, thanks yeah. for thanks for doing the podcast. Yeah, really happy to be here, and thanks for having me. Really excited to uh, chat with you and see what's going on. Yeah, so we're going to uh, talk about three of your pieces uh, tonight, and I wanted to start off with uh, the piece that I was of yours that I was introduced to first, which was Convergence. Okay. Um, and, I mean, that piece was on Seamus, and it uh, rightfully won the first prize, uh, ask half Seamus. <laughs> I, I, it was, I mean, I, you, maybe you weren't paying it, paying attention or, or looking at it, but the, when that piece came on, the chat fucking blew up. <laughs> like it was insane. And I was, I was like one of them kind of leading the way. It was just, uh, yeah, it was, it was, it was bananas. Um, but, uh, yeah, like I said, it won the first prize for the ask half Seamus student commission competition, and it's also gotten the uh, award of distinction at the 2021 Pre Ars Electronica. So uh, this piece is for uh, augmented double bass yep. and electronics performer. So let's yeah. get into it because there's so many things happening with this piece. I mean, first of all, uh, who'd you write it for and, and how did you get connected with that person? So I wrote it for a uh, double bassist based out of Switzerland named Alexander Gabriche, who um, came to Stanford for a performance residency. The graduate composers at Stanford invite um, a number of performers each year uh, to work with us and, and write pieces for them um, and do documentation, you know, et cetera. And uh, Alexander was a really, really wonderful performer to bring in uh, as a specialist in, in just incredible double bass works. Um, he performed um, some works by other composers. Uh, he performed a, this, this nightmarishly difficult piece by a composer named Agata Zubel. Um, and I remember just having to pick my jaw off the floor when I first saw him perform that. Um, so... 
I knew that I was working with a really just in immensely talented person and uh, was also happy to find once he got here and, and was working with him in person. He's also one of the nicest humans I've ever met. Um, he specializes in five string double bass, which I think is pr uh, more common over in Europe. Um, but he, anyway, he, he came to Stanford in what we now know was a, uh, the before times in January of 2020. Um, and he worked with us for a few days. And um, so I had some time to work with him. I recorded a lot of materials. We covered the, um, my sessions with him were mostly focused on trying out some technical things and um, recording uh, some raw materials that I knew I was going to need to use when he came back. So we covered the bass in eight microphones. Um, it was it did a pair of DPAs, four AKG C411 contact mics, and two Shirtler pickups. Just in this like um, what I called the sort of exploded map along the bass. And so anywhere that he wanted to make sound, anything that he wanted to do, we could pick it up. But what I was actually doing while I was recording all of this was I was recording both the stems from all the mics, but also a sort of spatialized version of that where it was blown out and into ambisonics uh -huh. uh, in, in fifth order, I think was what I recorded it in. Uh, and so we just worked together for, you know, hours and just recording material and bouncing ideas back and forth. And sometimes it would be us um, even just having the bass laid flat on the floor and performing sounds on it with like a, um, Oh, uh, Oh, I'm blanking on it. The um, the bouncing ball, like the Super Bowl mallet. Super Bowl. Super oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So sometimes we did like some Super Bowl mallet stuff on it. We were doing all, all different kinds of stuff, just collecting as many sounds as possible, and working on different improvisations and things like that. Um, and then he went on vacation for about a month. Actually, he he went down the California coast. And, and in that interim period, I put together an audio score. Uh, that was the plan for convergence. It was sort of a skeleton that we built everything off of. And I sent it to him and he would just listen to it a couple times every day and really just started to internalize it. And we built that from the ground up from that sort of audio score. So then when he came back, he was intimately familiar with this, with this audio score and uh, we started to work together. At this point, you know, I brought out all of my technology and I already had a clear plan that I wanted it to be this duet between um, a double bassist and, and an active electronics performer, somebody who's not just running a patch that's doing like live DSP or whatever, but somebody not who's just, actually... Not just pressing spacebar. Not just pressing spacebar, exactly. And I, I didn't want to be married to the laptop and I have been working on this performance interface that this piece features, um, which is a pair of gloves, um, sensor augmented gloves for, for a long time. Uh, and so at that point we had some time to really work together and dig into all these different materials. And so we built it up off of that audio score. And as we worked together, it came, it came down to, he started to, he had, he had to develop an intimate knowledge of what the functions of the gloves were because he had to know what certain gestures meant and what the, the sort of sonic result would be. And so we had to develop this kind of language of interaction between the two of us. Um, so it was a cross between like 
you know, your standard kind of improvisational relationship between two performers, but also a little bit of like uh, almost conducting or sound painting and the kind of just sort of personal connection that can can pick up between two people when you have enough time to really dig in and work on that. Uh, and it was guided by that audio score sort of skeleton. And then throughout the week, I also developed a set of clear um, cues that was running on a screen nearby. And so it was really a, a process to get the piece up and running. Um, but what it's and, and so it's hard to kind of pin down and, and talk about it in this sort of, you know, quick way, because it's not it's not a traditional score. There is no mm-hmm. traditional score. It's an audio score. It's the language of the the gestures and relationship between the two performers. And then it's also this sort of like ad hoc video score that's telling me when the next cue is coming, what it's going to do in shorthand, and then a couple um, maybe adjectives or short notes that I had about what specifically needs to happen in that section. And then it was just time, time. So let's, let's unpack you know, mm-hmm. so, some of those things. Let's let's start off with the audio score. You know, what is what is he listening to? You know, so what what he was listening to and studying was um, a short of an alternate version of a piece that I put together as a companion work called Conduit. So the re- the way that I released that piece, there's actually two pieces on the release. There's Convergence and Conduit. And um, the skeleton that's running underneath of Convergence is a is a sort of re- structured uh, version of of that piece conduit which was made using all of those recordings we did on his initial visit and it's all rendered in binaural and it's all made strictly with recordings of the double bass there's very minimal kind of like external sounds or processing so he's like learning his own recorded and and edited improvisation basically yeah 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 and and is conduit um so that piece exists Mm -hmm. as what is that fixed media or it's basically a a fixed media plus piece i did a i did a version of it that ended up being an installation where i had this sort of um actually suspended a double bass not, not a nice one but a very trash one that i found from the ceiling uh with steel cables and put um transducers on the back of it and basically made it um a resonant element of of like a fixed media live electronics playback kind of thing where it was sort of like this disembodied bassist that sometimes it's the only sounding object in the room and it's like a one-to-one experience so we did that in the listening room at stanford which is a, a third order ambisonic sphere okay and it was suspended in the very middle um now going to the uh going to the electronics that you're controlling with the gloves yeah is every is are all sounds coming from the live uh like the live bass sounds that are mic'd or Mm -hmm. do you have like samples that are loaded up is there any fixed media that you're because there were a couple times it seemed like it almost seemed like the two of you were waiting for something, you know, like as in we're waiting for a hit to happen in the fixed media and then we'll go. But were you also controlling that? It's a mix. It's a big mix. Um, So I mentioned earlier that there's a cue system running in the background and I'm getting visual feedback. So in the documentation of the piece, you can actually see me look off to the left 
a fair number of times because I'm checking that. Uh, yeah. and so there is a certain kind of waiting element. So there's that the audio score is actually sometimes present in the performance itself. It's actually sometimes mixed in because it's it's output in ambisonics and it just sort of fills out that space and we're both just sort of feeding off of it and building up, like I said, that skeleton on top. Um, and then I have access to all eight of the microphones because uh, we brought back that same mic system um, for performance of convergence. So I have access to all eight microphones and I can record from any of them in real time and start to do um, uh, basically a lot of what I'm doing is live granular synthesis. Okay. And so I can do a lot of manipulation and building materials off of what he does in real time. Um, there's a really good example of this. Um, it's near, it's a little past the halfway point of the piece where he decides um, to sh shriek into the microphone. Mm -hmm. That's a DPA up at the top of the fingerboard. And I, I jokingly refer to it as the pterodactyl shriek. <laughs> and I, um, because I, because I know my instrument well, and because I have all of this at my fingertips, I was able to like grab the first like second of that and then immediately start playing off of it. And we ended up turning it into this like Lord of the Rings ring wraith, like Nazgul shriek. It's one of my favorite parts of the piece. Um, so there's a lot that's live. There's a lot that I'm grabbing in real time in regards to that being live. There's also a lot where uh, the cues load in specific pre-made samples for the granular synthesis. So those samples aren't necessarily playing live, but it's what I'm using as my sort of bank of raw material. And that changes at various points throughout the piece as well. And then there's a couple fixed media uh, things that are running as well. That's not, you know... That's just sometimes it's just I wanted something that was very specific. And so there's at certain cues. Yeah, there's like an arrival point that might be a fixed media cue that we're sort of weaving in and out of. Mm -hmm. um, now, you said the the gloves, you've been mm -hmm. kind of developing this over over a period of time. So what what has that process been like? How how long have you been developing this? Are you using these gloves uh, for like how many other projects have you done with these or you know anything like that sure the first drawing of the gloves that i have goes back about five years but i didn't actually get the chance to start building them um until about three years ago mm -hmm. more or less when i started at stanford um that was when i started actually planning out and putting parts together and trying things uh, and so I built them in, in modules and I, I would build sort of like a part of one of them and then do a, a, a piece, whether it was like a, a big piece or simply like an etude or a series of etudes to, to kind of learn parts of it as I went. And so I've slowly built up the complexity of the instrument over time. So the first major piece that I did with them was just for the right hand, um, or excuse me, that's, that's incorrect. It was just the left hand. Um, and it's a piece called Isolate. And um, that glove, for example, is, uh, it's a teensy, it was at the time, it's a teensy 3.2 microcontroller with a gyroscope uh, and then um, control sticks that I ripped out of PlayStation portables nice. at the tip of each finger. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and a ribbon sensor on the back of my arm. Um. 
And it was really just, so that first piece was really just trying to get the tech up and running um, and try to make something that, that was uniquely musically and technically afforded by having such an interface. And so at that point, what I also started to dabble with, which has since become an explicit part of this interface, is building in machine learning into, into the mix with all of this. So I started developing uh, you know, trained machine learning or um, supervised machine learning models that recognize certain gestures and building up a bank of gestures that I can do to really unlock uh, for me personally as a performer that, that gyroscopic element as well. Because it's pretty easy to just say, like, especially when you're working in ambisonics, as I often do, you know, it's, it's a pretty one-to-one -one mapping to say, oh, well, I moved my hand, I rotated around in space, and sound moves in a one-to-one -one relationship. But I wanted to be able to access things that were perhaps a little bit more drawing on my background as an instrumental performer, as like a guitarist, and things like that, you know, to start developing certain gestures and affordances and ideas that I could use in performance that... That would be a little bit more um, intricate. So. Yeah, I mean, you know, watching, first of all, the documentation of it is awesome. And and that that pretty much goes for all of your pieces. Like, you have some awesome, uh, <laughs> awesome YouTube videos of all these pieces. Um, but, you know, I... I highly encourage uh people after they listen to this episode and listen to the pieces just as as audio go to doug's youtube channel and watch these pieces because um you really get a good sense of the type of interaction that you're doing with with the hands and the interaction between you and uh and alexander um yeah and i think there's also an element there where you don't get this in the audio recording, but there's a there's this this current this undercurrent of energy in the that you can you can see in the video, you know, both in Alexander and I as the piece goes on, just how taxing it is to perform, how actively engaged we are, and I think I think that was something that I was very thankful we were able to capture, um, especially because as I mentioned when he came, it was you know we worked together in January and February of 2020. We got to perform this piece once uh, for a live audience as it was originally intended, and then COVID. Yeah. Um, and and the uh, the documentation. I mean, thank you. I'm, I'm about the compliment on the documentation. That documentation was a little bit of a nightmare situation to put together because um, he he was doing, I think four new works and then he brought a couple that he wanted to perform hmm. and we had a whole day to record them to document them audio and video and i was running audio all day for everybody else's pieces uh -huh. um and i had wanted to because i'm at the karma stage where we recorded it there's out there's exterior facing windows and i wanted to have the stage completely dark so i had to wait until the end of the day until after the sun had gone down uh, so i was tired he was tired. Um, and then on top of it, once I got everything set up for my piece, um, this, this goes to show why you want to put you know, your electronics and handmade things in cases. A bead of sweat uh, fell off my face and hit the microcontroller on my right hand and just fried it. Oh, my God. Dead. Uh, and this was like, you know, a minute, two minutes before we're supposed to hit record. 
Oh my so God. I'm, I'm freaking out. I'm saying, just hold on 10 minutes. And I, I run down to the workshop at Karma and I grab a pair of pliers and I just rip that thing out and put a new one in its place, flash the code to it, solder it back together. And we were up and running. But, you know, by the time I come back, like I'm, I'm like borderline losing it. And I think that, you know, for better or for worse, that that energy came through in the piece. And I think that's part of what's so it does intense about it. You know, by the end of the performance, his bass is just, you know, it's covered in sweat and I'm completely exhausted. It's but I think it made something kind of special about the uh, about that come out in the documentation. Yeah, absolutely. Um last question before we listen to it you know what were you thinking about when you wrote this like what was the conceptual starting point for convergence the conceptual starting point for this piece um i've already i've already covered a couple of the things that were really key to it one was it was a technical concern it was a technical question this is a performance practice that i'm trying to build up with an instrument of my own design and i keep adding modules to it you know i talked about the the left hand and I mm-hmm. by that point the right hand existed now there's a further module that exists as well and I keep building up this performance practice and this technical understanding with my instrument so it was an exploration of that number one um, number two I've done live electronics work now for a number of years but I wanted to really try at, from an improvisation sort of exp- uh, perspective to work with an acoustic Former, who was as talented as Alexander to see if I could bring the level of musicianship that I needed to in that kind of an environment. Uh, so in that way, it was also sort of an experiment and uh, an attempt to push myself musically and creatively to actually be able to try and not just do something that satisfies me musically live and on the spot, but something that really synthesizes with another performer. Um, those are sort of the main things, and, mm-hmm. and, and I think that's what everything off of that is really just out of the process of working on the piece because it was, it was so fast and it was put together so quickly and in such this like turbulent kind of way of making things in real time and putting it all together. And then COVID happened and I had suddenly all this time to go through and review the materials and really focus in on getting that the documentation edit right because we only had two recordings of the run through and i'll be fully transparent it's not it's not just one single run through it's i'm cutting back and forth a little bit between the two um but so everything that i've developed in regards to how i feel about the piece and what it means to me you know personally and and how it sits in my own compositional practice some of that has had just by nature of the environment and working through COVID been things that have developed later as I've worked on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's, I, I don't know how you feel about this piece, like within your own, um, you know, list of works and everything. But um, I have found uh, it's, for, at least for me, uh, it's those pieces that, you know, you're just kind of forced to do quickly that you don't have time to think about that. You just have to do it. Um, 
now there are times when that doesn't work out but uh, quite <laughs> quite a few quite a few times for me when when it's just been like man i have a deadline staring me down in three weeks and i gotta work you know 12 to 16 hours a day to get this thing done because there's the instrument and the electronics and blah 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 and it just yep. seems like this overwhelming task and then when you actually afford yourself the time to sit down and do it mm-hmm. you know um something really great can can come out of it and i think it it seems like to me at least that's that's what you've got here like you you I appreciate that yeah you got Sometimes something yeah that raw unfiltered sort of st- not not strictly stream of conscious but that yeah that that raw unfiltered you don't have time to agonize over every single detail. Mm-hmm. So there's just something, some kind of yeah, current that occasionally comes out of those projects. Uh, sometimes it's a hot mess and a complete failure. <laughs> I've had pieces like that. Yeah. Um, I th- and thankfully this was not one of them. And yeah. I think um, part of that was just down to, you know, it was months of planning and, and years of work on the performance system ahead of time that really made sure that I was prepared and in a space to be able to, in the moment, really deliver and, and bring it and, and pull through. Okay, so let's listen to it. This is Alexander Gabriz and Douglas McCosland, and this is Convergence.
So now let's talk about your piece Duct. Um, mm-hmm. This is for Resonant Metal Spring and Interactive Electronics. And you you say that in your notes that it's part of this bigger project. So you can can you kind of tell me about that bigger project and how this piece fits into that overall uh, work? Yeah. So the the project that that this fits into is a broader project um, of pieces that are I sort of have under the umbrella of a, a called the Inter project, which is. Um, meant as like like the literal the prefix of inter it's sort of you know you might this isn't a theme that i use for all of my projects but i i often um when i'm working on projects i work i think a lot about iteration and every project that i do often yields you know two three maybe even four different like pieces and there's usually one primary work and then some sub works as well um so like there's convergence and conduit and then there was another work that hasn't really been released called confluence that was like an etude piece similarly in in inter there's um, a series of works that they don't all share the same sort of like naming convention Uh um the primary work hasn't actually been released yet um but it was done in collaboration with a saxophone duo named the t2 saxophone duo as well as the quasar saxophone quartet um and it's a the so the broader piece is a four soprano sax baritone sax and two spring performers Uh and in working on that i also developed uh this solo piece duct which is for one uh single spring performer and um electronics that you know that that really makes me think of um artists like uh like Matthew Barney. Mm. Um, do you know, have you run across his work at all? Not, um, not super familiar. No. Okay. So he was formerly, uh, married to Bjork and, um, I, I kind of got into his work when I was in my doctorate and I took this, uh, 20, like 20th and 21st century art class. Mm -hmm. And, um, and the way he works is like he will do a project and there will be like a film aspect to it, but there will also be sculptures that come sure. that are in the film, but then can also be viewed like in a gallery space. There will, you know, and then maybe Bjork does an album for it or something. So there's like a multi dimension, uh, dimensional quality to this. And, the way you're describing it kind of reminds me of that where yeah. it's like, you know, you think, uh, being doing my doctorate in, in Houston at rice, we had the side Twombly gallery right there. And you walk into a room and it's like, Oh, this is the green and white series of paintings. Right. right. So it kind of takes that artist artist mentality into composition, which you don't really see that often. Usually like, People are, you know, oh, okay, I'm gonna do this, and then I'm gonna hop to this, and then I'm gonna hop to this. But right. I, I've, I, I really, I really like that approach uh, that you can like, that you can kind of get so much out of the same material. Right, right, yeah, and that's that's a conscious part of my creative process, and one that I've really actively engaged with over the last few years. Um, and I think part of it is just 
you know, part of it is survival because you can mm -hmm. only reinvent the wheel so many times in a year for so many pieces. Mm -hmm. And that was what I used to sort of agonize over with every single piece that it was completely new and completely new. And, and, and there's something really exciting about that. There's also something really, really exhausting about that. Yeah. Um, and engaging with this idea, I think for me, has actually yielded a, a much more rich and, and kind of personally meaningful relationship to my own process. And it's really been wonderful to be able to, to, to think of, you know, like I said, there's, there's almost always a primary work, but then I have all these little sub works or sub creations or alternate versions that, that might suit um, a different performance environment or, or perhaps an installation uh, adaptation of something. And it's a really exciting way to work and explore all the ways that your material you might have developed for one particular thing, what, what else it can do? Because so often we don't exhaust um, creatively everything that we've generated as composers uh -huh. for one particular piece, especially working, I think, in um, cases where you're doing a lot of recording of, of, you know, of generation of raw materials, whether it's you're actually like recording a performer or generating a lot of synthesis materials that you might not use all of or, or making instruments or even, um, you know, score sketches and things like that, that didn't make it into the final piece, you know? Yeah. The, what you just said right there reminds me of, um, the, the story of, uh, when, when John Cage was doing the Williams mix in um, the Baron studio, you know, it was Cage and Feldman and Brown and Wolf and the Barons and Tudor and uh, Earl Brown, Earl Brown's piece, which I think is called Octet. Um, it was like all the scraps. Like he didn't, <laughs> he didn't actually use any of the sound material that was actually recorded for the project. He used like all the scraps that were like thrown into the, thrown into this box anyway. Yeah. Um, so for a piece like this, are, is there a score? Is it kind of a set of like timed instructions? Um, you know, how, how are you going through the process of, of writing this, of setting it in time? Sure. So thinking about it in the in the sort of arc of my my works and in my creative practice, this piece came um, only a, f a couple months before convergence mm -hmm. was when I st was really working on it and intensively creating the materials. And so at that at that time, I was already starting to work with and think pretty critically about alternate scoring methods. And things like that. So you're you're exactly your intuition is totally correct. Duct is um again sort of like a, a structured um video score that's running in a max patch mm -hmm. off on the side, uh, which was created from a shorthand sort of graphic score that I created um actually just in a journal. Um and uh it had, you know, some strict notation, but a lot of graphics and, and a lot of text and some of that. It was all sort of cobbled together. And then I edited that down uh, and sort of synthesized that into a way that would be representable in like, you know, a series of images in a max score with some text. And again, like a big timeline running that tells me, you know, what what's the next cue? When is it coming? Uh, what's it going to do, et cetera? And uh, thankfully, for for the case of Duct, because it was just me working as a as a performer and as a 
you know, documenting it and also writing it, I was able to really dedicate quite a bit of time to internalizing that piece. And so by the time I actually got around to documenting it, um, I didn't, I no longer needed the video score. It was very much just ingrained and intuitive. So, but, uh, yeah, that really, that kind of scoring method has, has been something I've been doing a lot lately. Uh, it really just comes out of my dissatisfaction as a composer with making scores in the traditional sense and just how much I, I really dislike that doing that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I feel that, that frustration. Um, you know, this piece obviously by just the, you know, the physicality of it kind of calls to mind like music on a long thin wire by Alvin Lucier, mm-hmm. um, yeah, who recently passed away. Um, yeah. something, something that I often do when composing is look at pieces that I love that I think like could have gone further or could have gone in a different direction or perhaps didn't exploit something that I think would be interesting. Did you, did you have anything like that with this piece or was it just like, Hey, I've got a slinky and I'm going to, you know, put some contact mics on it and, and do some cool stuff with it. Um, there's an, an artist, um, whose name is escaping me right now, but who, who works with, um, I think it's called the long string instrument, which is again, sort of a similar kind of idea to Alvin Lucier. Um, and I, I was, I was interested in that work at the time and in that project. And then, um, also sort of thinking a little bit about a visit that we had at Stanford from Letitia Tsunami. Uh, she was talking about a new instrument that she's been working on, which, um, is sort of like this, this large metal circle with a, a number of sp- uh, smaller springs that are running inside of it. Uh, but she's not using any of the actual audio output from those springs. And so I think there's a little bit of me that was sort of thinking like, well, I'm already interested in, you know, like recording resonant metals and, and things like that. I've done projects using resonant metal sounds in the past, um, percussion works and stuff like that. And I wanted to see what kind of sound I could make and get and get from a slinky. Um, because I was interested, I just, they're so cheap. Mm-hmm. I bought a four pack online for I think tw- <laughs> like twelve dollars or something like that. And um, my partner and I were in a very small apartment at the time, and I stretched this slinky across the entire apartment. I like taped taped one side of it to one wall, and then the other side of it to another wall. And I put a, a pair of contact mics on it, and I popped on my headphones and just started playing around. And I was like, "Ooh, this sounds like a." container ship or just something like gigantic and i was uh, immediately just sort of really drawn to that sound world and i started finding all these various implements that i could use to to perform with it and it really just sort of was an an immediate kind of love of that sound world and, and working with that that was just grew very organically out of i think responding to a couple specific ideas from other artists and then the actual sort of artifact itself you know, with a piece like this and and a piece like Convergence, you know, that require so much to make them happen live. Um, but you but you said, you know, you were able to do Convergence once uh, live bef- before lockdown. But have you kind of thought about um, the future of these pieces? Like, can they be performed by anyone? I mean, it, with convergence, you kind of have to have the gloves, so that that kind of locks it to you in a certain way, right? And and for that piece, I plan on at some point releasing the plans and the code for the gloves, so that other people could build duplicate 
builds, but I kind of I kind of want to have them completely uh, fixed and and finished first yeah. before I, I would do such a thing. Um, so I think it's possible that people could do work with the gloves in the in the future. But I think for me, I have a little bit of friction because because the the idea and, and the name actually even of convergence is very oh. much wrapped up in you know this was a very specific occurrence between two people that happened in, in a very specific particular kind of environment and so for me especially as the covid pandemic has gone on and alexander and i despite really wanting to continue performing this piece uh, around the world just having not been able to uh, i think it's i'm starting to fear that if we are are able to come back to it in the future it's not going to be the same piece anymore it's going to have to be a new piece Mm -hmm. and that's something that he and i have talked about um, just because you know we're going on two years now from originally being able to work together and we're both having, you know, grown in that time, I think we would just probably have to move on to something new as for duct. Um, I have to go through and that's, that's a project that is on a, a longer to do list of <laughs> cleaning up the performance materials so that other people can perform it. Yeah. Um, that one I think will be performable by other folks some someday. And I've had people who've reached out and been interested and I'm, I'm very thankful to them for their, for their interest. But for the time being, it's just not in a state that is performable. I'll have to eventually sit down and probably do a, a real score, <laughs> a lot of quotes, <laughs> real score. Right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, your, your music, I mean, this duct, convergence the piece we're going to listen to later you know is big and impactful i'm i'm kind of wondering do you have that like quiet piano piece mode um because i mean there are glimpses there are glimpses of that in all those pieces like they kind of peek through but i'm wondering if you ever kind of sit down and say like i'm gonna resist the drive to be like big. And I'm the only reason I'm asking is because I have the exact same thing. Like <laughs> most of my music in one way or another goes to those like big impactful gestures, those those hits. So I'm just I'm just wondering if like if if that kind of thing is is difficult to resist. Like it's just such a part of you. It is uh, a, an integral part of my my musicianship and my my musical language as as a composer. Um and for me, in, in my work, I think a, a lot about huge contrasts and the way that I'm structuring materials is often very consciously this, this, this sort of fragmented presentation of materials where, you know, you have these huge, intense gestures and these, these impacts that hit, you know, as hard as I can possibly make them. But it's almost always contrasted by some something that's completely minuscule or, or, mm-hmm. or just this, this, you know, this sonic exploration of some sort of minutia, uh, you know, right against it or something like that. I'm really interested in, in kind of that, that extreme juxtaposition of materials, both timbrally and sonically, but also dynamically. Um, and that makes for really interesting and exciting music f- for me. Um, and there are works where I have entertained more of that that quieter material, I think, more than others, um, though they haven't been as recent. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, um, I think some of that is, is conscious, you know, some of it is exploring, um, this sort of language that I've been working with over the last few pieces. Um, and some of it, I think is just, some of it, I think is not completely conscious as well. Some of it is just, you know, I might sit down and I, and I say like, okay, this section needs to be, <laughs> needs to be this, this thing. And then it comes out this completely other thing. And I'm just like, <laughs> whoa, well, I'm, hmm, do I like that more? Maybe I do. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah. Uh, what was, what is, or what was your instrument? Uh, my background of instrumentally is as a saxophonist and a guitarist. Okay. Mostly an electric guitarist. And I, I'm a big, um, I'm a big metalhead. Okay. Played in metal bands. I was thinking you might be a percussionist, but (laughs) yeah, I, uh, I think in another life I would have really enjoyed percussion Yeah, uh, and, uh, being a percussionist specifically, I should say, um, yeah, guitar is, is my, my primary instrument, I would say. Awesome. All right, well, let's listen to this one. This is called Duct.
Okay, so let's talk about your last piece. So this is Penumbra Umbra Void for Cello and Fixed Media. And uh, you're working with Seth Parker Woods, uh, uh, cellist. Mm-hmm. And, you know, kind of kind of tell me the story of this piece. This is, it seems like it's not your most recent work, but it is like among the most recent works that you've uh, completed. So how did, how did this piece come about? This piece... Um... This piece is a collaboration with Seth that got started, um, again, as, as a product of being a student at Stanford. He was one of the performers that we were interested in working with and um, one that I was particularly interested in working with. Um, having seen some of his project, like uh, Iced Bodies and all of these various intermediate cello performances that he's explored and done um, from you know when he was at Huddersfield to where he is now, uh, I knew that he would be a really exciting and dynamic performer to work with who would be game for pretty much anything I wanted to do. Um, this piece, however, um, in contrast to the other two that we've spoken on tonight, um, those those pieces are perhaps more um, straightforward music and sonic experiences without, without necessarily an overt, um, perhaps... Um, 
like that? program or concept yeah, or exactly, something like a, like a program or a concept. But this piece is really um, built on and exploring a, a series of three texts that I wrote uh, in a journal during a particularly dark um, and period when I was struggling with some some pretty serious mental health mm-hmm. related uh, troubles. And those texts are actually included in the in the video version of the piece at the very end. They appear, and then they're they're titled for the same as the piece itself, uh, Penumbra, Umbra, and Void. Um, and so I started with these texts, um, and began to think about how I would create a solo cello material that would perhaps augment them, or or or, or synchronize with them in some sort of way. And at the time, I was actually thinking about um, writing the piece for like a speaking cellist. So that the text itself would actually be um, quite literally we've woven into the piece as well. But um, over the course of writing it, um, I eventually decided against that. And what I actually did was I, I made a video score. So there's the video score is a mix of traditionally notated um, materials as well as some graphic materials, you know, some sort of standard notation plus kind of stuff, uh, as well as this sort of vid- video material, this raw material that I was shooting with a macro lens on my phone in isolation, uh-huh. you know, just trying to find uh, things of interest uh, around my home while, while sort of dealing with some of these things. And, and I developed a set of rules that governed Seth's response to these materials. You know, it was things like, um, how you know how bright is the material how active is the material what's the texture of the material that's being shown you know is it rough or is it smooth etc these are some very you know sort of lower level examples but so i had this this contrasting material that was into this video score that was like traditional notation traditional uh, you know graphic notation and then these this video material it's all woven and and, and interweaved together and then the text itself. And I, again, had a sort of like, this was the most um, open-ended part of the, of the, the score, but I, I asked him to respond to the text as well, which is sort of woven into the piece. Um, and so the video score is fairly chaotic, but ultimately that's where we started. And I sent this material to him and uh, we had a little bit of collaboration remotely where he would send me videos of um, various excerpts and things like that. And then um, after tweaking some things, he went to Experimental Sound Studio in Chicago and we recorded his solo cello run-throughs. Um, we did you know, a series of recordings for, for each of the, the three pieces as well as a couple straight run-throughs, et cetera. And then I sat on the material for a while, not really sure exactly what I wanted to do with it. Um, I liked it a lot as a solo cello piece. Um, but it just didn't feel complete. Um, and I just wasn't sure what to do with it. And, and eventually what I kind of came down to was uh, I wanted to create an intermedia work that wo- that sort of blurred the line between documentation and something more. Uh-huh. And I wanted that, that line to shift as the piece went on. And so the video version of this piece to me is the most... Um, full vision of of what the piece is because it uh, really takes all these materials that I was working with with Seth um you know the video material I was shooting 
that uh, some of which is from the score, uh, but then some of which is actually shot later on and added in as I worked with all this material that I had gotten from him. And um, so it's a long synthesis of many different avenues of creative thinking and work, uh, all sort of reflecting on uh, essentially these three texts that were written for the piece. It's so interesting because, you know, obviously I... I saw convergence at Seamus. I looked, I, I especially wanted to watch the video for duct, um, as I was preparing, you know, questions for it, but (laughs) the one where the video really, really matters, I ended up not watching. (laughs) So I'll definitely have to go back and watch that because it's, it's so, I mean, it's so interesting what's kind of happening right now with, uh, with music being, you know, all of us being forced into isolation, being yep. forced into, um, you know, having to, for a lot of us, you know, like actually learn video skills, uh, mm-hmm. because that was the only thing you could do. Um, right. and I, I've had this conversation with other composers that made pieces during, during, uh, lockdown that were like, you know, uh, scores at a distance uh, or, or you know like uh, recordings at a distance where you had like you know four eight people in different rooms or whatever and I'm, and I'm always curious like okay what's the future you know right. what what is the future of this is this a concert work is this strictly a video work if so like you know how do you how do you feel about that because we're you know we are from from the beginning in school, you know, oh, well, you know, you have to get it on the stage, get it on the stage. But, you know, there's a new virtual stage. Right. And just like, you know, just like a fixed media piece can be like the perfect thing, you know, mm-hmm. it, it will always be 100% accurate um, every time you play it. So becomes this. And I, I'm just, I'm just curious about your your thoughts on that like how are you how you are engaging with this not new but seemingly more prevalent um you know not genre but at least uh at least venue for yeah, artistic or intentionality almost, yeah yeah well so first off i i i love performing uh my my works live um and I, I really get a lot of uh, fulfillment out of doing that. And I would, be, I would be doing live performances of Convergence and Duct right now if it were really possible. Yeah. But there's not many opportunities to travel right now. Um, and then, of course, Alexander and I being in, in completely opposite sides of the planet makes it further difficult as well as the continuing health situation. Um, Penumbra Umbra Void, however, was really a chance for me to kind of meditate on materials. And it's it's really intended as an intermediate piece, as a, as a fixed piece. Um, and it was f- not necessarily completely that from the beginning, but it became that pretty early on. Mm-hmm. And that gave me a lot of time to think about what exactly I wanted to communicate with the piece and what I wanted to explore thematically and musically and, and just you know how I was going to use all the materials and synthesize them all together 
But that does create an interesting conundrum for how to show the piece, because um, especially in the in the full video version of the piece as well, there's a um, there's a slight content issue with that piece as well that makes it something that I wouldn't necessarily want to show at mm-hmm. a big conference because I don't I don't know that that's the appropriate venue. Um, perhaps the the perfect venue for me on this piece uh, is actually someone you know viewing it or listening to it on their own with a pair of headphones mm-hmm. uh, sort of in private so in that way you were asking earlier if there's sort of like a quiet piano mode and although this piece is certainly not <laughs> quiet piano mode um intimate it is it is intentionally like an intimate sort of chamber music kind of relationship for, for me between the piece and and the the sort of audience I think that's the singular of audience. Um, but anyway, the viewer. So Awesome. Well, let's listen to it. So we're going to hear Seth Parker Woods. And this is Penumbra Umbra Void. Yeah. 
Cool. All right. Last question. Um, how did you find music as the thing that you wanted to pursue for your life? I, I was, I was involved in music from a very young age. You know, I think it's pretty common as a kid that was enrolled in piano lessons by my, uh, my wonderful parents at the age of six. <laughs> and I stuck with it for, for a while until I picked up the saxophone and I was a performer uh, for a long time. Um, I dabbled with trying to write uh, some really awful, awful rock songs um, <laughs> that have since been buried and expunged from the internet. <laughs> Were you in a band? Did you have a band? I was. I was in a few. Um, yeah. And, um, you know, so that, 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 that's the shorthand version until I graduated high school. And I, I didn't, I was pretty rudderless at the time. I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. And so I started undergrad um, as a student, uh, undeclared, and did a year of gen eds that I knew would satisfy essentially any kind of degree track that I wanted to pick. But that was also a year uh, pretty much completely off of music entirely. And I felt that void really, really keenly. Um, and I felt that that call to come back to it. And I, and I told myself at the time, I was like, okay, well, if I'm going to do this, I need to do it in a way that is um, that, that could at least become become a career. And so I started out oh. as a music ed major. Um, but then my life since has been a series of those kinds of questions. They're like, okay, well, if, but if I'm going to do this, then you know I'm going to go full in and full in. And, and so then I then it was not music ed, but but um, performance or or in then theory composition. And slowly from there, I think I've had many more versions of that that same question that have come up. And, and every time I I seem to pick, commit harder and commit more. And it seems to be paying off. Um, it has in the past paid off hugely in dividends. And it's been so rewarding to to do this and to go on this journey. And I'm just excited, you know, what what's next. So. Awesome. So before we go, can you tell everyone where they can find, uh, you know, more of your music, like your website, where they can find you on social media, stuff like that? Yeah, I'm, uh, I have a website. It's just douglasmccausland.net. Um, I'm also online on YouTube, as well as SoundCloud, uh, Facebook, Instagram. Those are all the main places you can find me. I have a band camp as well, if you're interested in that sort of thing. Um, and then um, as far as in-person events, the next big thing I have coming up is uh, 2022 Seamus and Kalamazoo for the premiere of my new piece, the new, the new glove work. Ooh, um, all right. It's an as-of-yet unveiled technology. Okay. Uh, called Why Do You Distort Your Face? Oh, awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for doing this, Doug. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. As always, if you want to find out more about adjective new music or lexical tones, please go to our website, www.adjectivenewmusic.com.